So as a point of review, that you may have heard this if you've been here for a number of weeks, uh, Hosea is a prophecy. Um, and recall that in the Bible, prophecy is less about predicting events in the future and more about calling out realities in the present, often in blunt and even hyperbolic ways. Um, also, as a point of review, Hosea makes much of sin and of judgment for sin, as blunt and hyperbolic. Uh, with painstaking repetition and penetrating metaphor. Hosea's rhetoric dangles over the line of polite conversation and at times leaps right over it. More than once in the past few weeks, uh, Peter or Nick or Sarah have acknowledged the discomfort, uh, discomfort ex- uh, and the sort of experience as we hear such rhetoric from our holy book. Now, um, as has been mentioned a number of times, Hosea 11 could be considered a softening of that rhetoric, an oasis of relief in the midst of a message of judgment. And while it is indeed that, it only makes sense in the context of that message. Uh, Indeed, the center of this chapter reflects very much the surrounding chapters. Will they not return to Egypt? Will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. Uh, At its heights, Israel had aspirations of political and military greatness. If you recall um, the the introductory sermon, uh, it it spoke of the reign of Jeroboam II, which is when uh, Hosea started his reign. And that was one of those times where Israel might have had aspirations to being a great nation from a worldly standpoint. But for most of its history, and increasingly over the course of Hosea's life, Israel existed in the foreboding shadow of two empires, one to the east and one to the west. To the west was their slave master of old, Egypt. Uh, But in subsequent years, uh, Egypt would often become a potential ally that Israel courted as a hedge against other threats. And chief among these threats was the ascending and brutal superpower in the east, Assyria. Now Hosea declares that Israel will face violence and subjugation as a result of their sin. You've heard this time and again over the past few weeks. Um, If they would not have God as king, they would have a despotic regime in God's place. Now, bracketing this very typical prophetic judgment, both before and after, are two of the most tender, evocative passages in all of Scripture. And it is to these passages that we now turn. Will you pray once more with me? God, your words are truth and life. Um, And often human words can be a pale reflection and, and even vanity and death. And so we regard your words with honor. Um, And we come to this time of considering your words, um, expressing our need of you, both my need and expressing them in all of our hearts and receiving them. For unless your Holy Spirit makes your words alive and applies them to our hearts, um, my own words would just be vanity and death. And so, Lord, we do ask that you would multiply and root down your word in our hearts, that that it would uh, multiply 30, 60, and 100 fold. Um, If there are any words that in our hearts or spoken by me that are not from you, would they be blown away like chaff? Uh, Lord, would you make this time fruitful for your glory? Amen. When When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. 
They burned incense to images. Hosea is a prodigious and masterful employer of metaphor, as you have already seen. Here, Israel is a child and loved with the love of a parent. Now, I have three children. Two of them are here today. Um, I think my kids are amazing. I don't say that often uh, because I'm enough of a Chinese dad to believe that my job is in part to help them avoid an overinflated opinion of themselves. <laughs> but I'm also uh, Western enough to tell you that uh, when I think of the, the people that each of my kids are becoming, I experience a joy that can only be described as feeling like my heart were going to explode. Uh, when I think of the individual uh, gifts of theirs and their individual personalities coming to fruition, when I see the choices and the of courage that they make in the midst of all the mundane choices that everyone makes, um, there's nothing better. Now, I like some other people's kids. I even have some, a deep affection for a few of them. Uh, I appreciate and greatly admire some of their good qualities. But that feeling of bursting inside, that only comes from my children. Now that same sort of exclusivity is implied by sonship in ancient Near Eastern cultures. It was no small thing to be called the son of a, any person, but particularly royalty or deity. Moreover, calling Israel a son, i.e. a male child, is a way of implying not only a lineage, but inheritance, both material inheritance and the inheritance of royal status. So the patriarchy of calling Israel a male child is in the context of the metaphor, not in its point. Um, Israel was special and was affirmed as special by God's choice. Out of Egypt I have called my son. That phrase evokes God's rescue of Israel out of Egypt and also the implied promise and vocation arising from that rescue. Unlike any other nation, God's gift of his land and to receive God's commission to be a kingdom of priests reflecting God's ways among the nation. Israel was special and beloved. Hosea expands on the parental metaphor uh, by stating that God was the one who taught his newly adopted child how to walk. It's a mark in every child's life and every uh, parent or caregiver's life when the child finally learns to walk. And here it says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize that it was I who healed them. Anyone who's taught a child how to walk, and how can you forget like the holding their, them by their little hands, right, Dang, almost dangling their weight um, as they learn how to walk and finally are able to walk on their own and then remembering that day and that experience. When my sister and I were kids, we had a second cousin that lived with us for a brief period as a toddler. Um, I think she was only there for a few weeks, but during that time, uh, my sister and I were playing, just the three of us with the toddler in our garage and doing the, the thing with the little kids where you're holding onto their hands, right, and they're just sort of dawdling like that. And then as we let go, one of us let go, I don't remember who it was, you know, she just sort of would toddle over to the next person, the, to the other person. Then we were just amazed and we just you know, turned around, did it again, and she would walk back and forth in the garage. And we were so delighted with ourselves and we could never, I could, I've never forgotten. Now, since that day, I think I've seen the second cousin maybe twice, like super briefly, but I'll never feel that, i never forget that connection that my sister and I taught her how to walk. 
It's like a, see that 40-year-old woman walking across the room? I taught her that. <laughs> God pointed out that uh, to the wayward nation that the very capacity to function as a people came from God's own provision, God's own instruction, God's own guidance. But this connection of tenderness turned to tragedy when they used that capacity to walk away. The more they were called, the more they went away. The, um, the pain of, of being abandoned uh, as, as a parent or caregiver is indeed one of the deepest pains. It's, it's, it's a, it was hard enough um, having my oldest daughter going away to college and abandoning us this year. Um, but to, to have this sort of abandonment that is spoken of here is, a, is, a, is an indicator of deep pain. I'd like to read um, just a, a brief illustration of that sort of pain. It comes from this book in the 1990s, Following Jesus Without Dishonoring Your Parents. InterVarsity published this book um, uh, you know, almost 30 years ago. It was the first uh, discipleship book for Asia. It was raining. Everybody else, it seemed, had a mom who came to pick them up in a family station wagon after school. Not us. My grandfather walked the half mile to our elementary school in the rain to pick up my brother and me. He carried his big black umbrella and wore his I'm proud of you too grandfather smile as he met us at the edge of the schoolyard. We greeted him in Chinese. I will spare you my um, attempt at Cantonese. Um, grandfather, how are you? But then Bruce's mom caught my eye. Her station wagon full of my schoolmates. Yes, thanks. Speeding off, I locked, looked through the back window. And parent or grandparent is a deep one indeed. And God, who earlier in this book compared himself to a, an abandoned lover, compares himself to a neglected parent. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking him by the hands. But they did not realize that it was I who healed them. Can you just hear the sadness, the tenderness. And can you see the humility of God's appeal to his people, not demanding allegiance, but lowering himself so as to appeal to their empathy? Out of Egypt, I called my son. It was I who taught him to walk, but he walked away. And so we come to our judgment passage. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. What will be the fate of these people who walk away and refuse to repent, who are determined to go anywhere but the way of God who loves them like a son? And this is where the second passage of tenderness springs upon us. It comes without warning, with no hint of its approach, beginning with four plaintive, rhetorical questions. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. Despite their absolute determination to seek their own destruction, to run into the arms of Egypt and Assyria, then the shocking declaration, his anger averted, the punishment will not run its natural course. Instead, they will follow after the Lord, or they will walk after the Lord. Those whom the Lord did, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. 
And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. God, in Hosea, is thrice compared to a lion. But unlike in chapters 5 and 13, where his ferocity is set against Israel, here in chapter 11, he will, his roar will free his people, calling them out of empire as in days of old. Chastened, they come back in humility, back to their good, good father from the oppressive masters they have chosen for themselves. This passage concludes with God setting his people in their homes once again. Um, I'd like to conclude with a few observations about this gracious restoration and the ways that that might uh, apply to us. So first of all, this restoration um, is compatible with God's wrath and judgment. It is compatible. Um, so uh, there's the phrase in here that says, uh, that says, I am God and not a man. Um, and what, when, when, God's, when he's, God is talking about, uh, when Hosea refers to God's relenting from his wrath, and he says, I'm, I'm, like, I'm God and not, not a man, he's not saying that um, God does not get angry or act in anger uh, the way that people do. Um, it's, it's actually just talking that like God's anger is a different sort than our anger. Our anger is one that will lash out in rage or will simmer underneath the surface in bitterness. God's anger is not like that, but God does have anger. God does have a settled disposition of, op of opposing that which is destroying his creation. That is God's anger, and, that, and, it, and it is personal. Um, God does not like the destruction of goodness and, uh, and the destruction of creation, and God is opposed to that. God is, is God's anger. Now, what God is un utterly unlike humans is that that can coexist perfectly with his tenderness toward us, with God's tenderness and mercy. So God, on the one hand, he is utterly unique in, able, in, in his ability to be utterly opposed to that which is destructive and, uh, and breaking of his creation. And yet at the same time, God could be utterly committed to those of us who are the embodiment of that very destructiveness. Um, that is how God is unlike a man. So this, this restoration is not, uh, it is not in opposition to God's judgment, but is compatible with it. Second, God, the, God's, uh, um, God's restoration and God's grace is undeserved. It is undeserved. Um, that's also hard for us to hear. Like, I think that often when I'm treated well, I think I deserve it. And even when I do something wrong and I get away with it or I have a reprieve, I think, yeah, well, you know, sort of, like, I sort of deserve that, too, because of my circumstances or I intended good or um, I am much better than other people. Um, but that's not the message of grace. The message of grace is that um, God's goodness to us is utterly undeserved. You know, when we think, when we see in this passage, Israel's destruction would have been just. It would have been appropriate. It would have been deserved. And that's very uncomfortable for us to, to say things like that. But it is, it, it is the same with us. Or at least it is the same with us if grace is to be grace. Um, if I, um, if, as I often do, you are like, if you are like me, we'll often feel like, well, I, 
I may have done something that was sort of wrong, but like I said before, it's sort of justifiable because of my circumstances or compared to other people or because of my positive intentions or something like that. Um, and th that, that may be true, if, uh, uh, but then grace is not grace. But if you feel, as I occasionally do, that I've screwed up and that I can't do anything about it, it can't be undone and there's no excuse for it, then grace is for you. And if that's you today, I want to assure you that grace is for you. So the restoration is compatible with God's wrath. The restoration is um, undeserved. And also, the restoration is unprovoked. It is unprovoked. Um, if it, it is not a picture here where Israel sees the error of their ways, turns back to God, and then God relents and takes away the judgment. Um, it, it's clear in here, actually, Israel is, is, uh, is described as unrepentant and refusing to turn back to God. And yet in the midst of that, there is this, this changing of mind. As a matter of fact, if you look, all, virtually every commentary with this feels like people have to do all these gymnastics to try to explain how God can change his mind. Because it just seems like it's just completely unprovoked and God was facing one way and then all of a sudden this unprovoked mercy, unprovoked reprieve. How can I abandon you? I will not abandon you. I will restore you. It is utterly unprovoked. Um, and, and, and if you are here today and you feel like you want to return to God, but you need to get your act together, you need to, you need to, to, to maybe improve yourself a little bit, know that it is not your efforts back toward God that elicit his kindness. It is not your repentance. It is not my repentance that leads us to God's kindness, but rather God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Israel is restored because, Israel turns back to God because God has shown kindness and mercy, not the other way around. And finally, and this is where maybe the discomfort and the, you have the greatest discomfort and greatest gospel in uh, this declaration of restoration. Uh, this restoration, it is compatible with God's wrath, it is undeserved, it is unprovoked. It is also unfulfilled. So Hosea proclaims that um, this time of judgment, this time of domination by empires over, my kindness is poured out toward you, and you will no more face the wrath and destruction that comes from your disobedience, and you will be restored once again in your land. And it didn't exactly happen. Um, uh, the, the, the northern part of Israel, the northern part uh, was, was actually was destroyed by Assyria and to this day is not been restored. The southern kingdom was threatened by Assyria and then delivered, but then was overrun by Babylon. A generation or two later, they were restored back from Babylon only to be conquered by a succession of other empires. That is, and, and even that, that sort of threat continues in Israel to today. So God's promise, first of all, that the destruction would not come again was such that destruction did come again. That, that um, the restoration, the full restoration to sonship, to that intimate, to that privileged, to that uh, exalted relationship as the son of God was left hanging left unfulfilled. 
And strangely enough, uh, some seven or 800 years after uh, Hosea began his ministry, there was another prophet in Israel that, uh, that did a strange thing with Hosea, uh, with this passage in Hosea. This prophet uh, looked at a refugee boy in Egypt, a poor refugee boy in Egypt, and then identified that boy, uh, identified that boy with this passage. There's a poor refugee boy in Egypt who, where, who was fleeing genocide and had to cross the borders uh, in a hurry. And that boy, according to this prophet whom we named Matthew, um, is identified with Israel here and, and is actually described as, out of Egypt I called my son. And that thereby identifying that one little boy with God's intimate, uh, privileged, exalted relationship of father and son. This son was called out of Egypt, and he learned to walk with Yahweh. This son did not walk away from Yahweh, and yet did face the sword of empire. This son who did not walk away, so identified with those of us who did, that he subjected himself to the judgment due us, to the lynching of an unjust empire. And God vindicated that sonship. He vindicated that special relationship with him by delivering that son, not only from the hands of empire, but the hands of death itself. And in this son, we have access to the unlimited mercy and forgiveness of God. And from the hand of that son, we await the full restoration of all creation. The name of that son is a der derivation, actually, of, uh, of the, the, the name Hosea. Hosea has an alternate form, Yehoshua, Joshua, um, uh, is an alternate form of the name Hosea. And a few over the course of a few centuries, that name would be contracted to Yeshua, sort of like Bobby, Yeshua, Jesus. So the son in Hosea is Israel, but the son in Hosea is also Jesus Christ. The one who enjoyed that relationship with God of being beloved, and through his death and resurrection, make that sort of relationship, that sonship with God, that heir, being an heir and joint heir with God, that vocation and deliverance of mercy and forgiveness available to us all. Lord God, we thank you for even your harsh and difficult words um, in Hosea. And also we thank you, Lord, for your tender, loving words in Hosea that spring upon us unannounced, that ring in our ears unexplained until they are explained in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, first of all, for your deep love and affection for Jesus for your unbounding connection to him, your unbounding delight in, in Jesus. And we thank you that we are invited into that, that through that, your mercy and forgiveness are now poured out on all flesh. And as we continue our worship of you by the declaration of our faith, by uh, offering prayers, by coming to your table, would we each in our own way experience what we need of your parental love for us, your deep loving kindness and endless mercy.
Amen.